You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Speed dating, rapid cognition, declaring war for weapons of mass destruction are all examples of thin slicing. To quote from Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, it is the ability of our unconscious to find patterns in situations and behavior based on very narrow slices of experience. It is the power of the glance, the central part of what makes us human. But what do you do if you can't thin slice, if you are mind blind, if your first impression apparatus is disabled? People with autism face this problem every day. What do we know about the cause and what is our approach to treatment? To learn more, please join us at the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Margaret Bauman. Dr. Bauman is an associate professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, adjunct associate professor of anatomy and neurobiology at Boston University School of Medicine, and clinical professor of pediatrics at the University of California at Irvine. Thin slicing, making rapid decisions, the book Blink has fascinated me, and obviously this is a problem with people with autism. What's your approach to treatment and helping adaptation to the rigors of life, the situations we have to deal with on a daily basis? The goal is to get the children identified and into treatment early. And that treatment largely is intensity of service. It's both quality and quantity, quite honestly. And you need to work with someone who has worked with children on the autism spectrum before. Uh, This is not a one-size-fits-all scenario, so it's someone who's got good instincts and intuition and who can figure out how the child in front of them is going to learn best. Uh, Most of the very good programs use intensity of service, a lot of one-to-one work where they're working on play skills, they're working on social interaction, looking, pointing, gesturing, turn-taking, Uh, They're working on language, both receptive and expressive. Sometimes when we have children, many of the times when we have children who have marked difficulty with expressive language, we use a picture-picture communication system. These children as a group, realizing, again, this is not one size fits all, but as a group, are largely strongly visual learners as opposed to auditory learners. So pictures, anything that's visual is extremely helpful uh, to them, and and oftentimes there are a number of these books which picture exchange communication systems, otherwise known as PECS, P-E-C-S, where the children have a little picture on on a Velcro strip and they you know, learn to give I want juice or I want this or I want that kind of thing and, and largely they're taught to use these at least initially for requesting. Uh, later hopefully commenting and later hopefully of course oral language down the line. Uh, but anyway the major focus is on all of those things and the current recommendation from the National Research Council which is a, a United States federal council that made recommendations for treatment on autism is a minimum of 25 hours a week. Now, certainly there are many places where that doesn't happen, unfortunately, but the the studies that are out there strongly suggest that intensity of service is really crucial here. Uh, there was a study also done by uh, Dr. Jerry Dawson at Seattle uh, some years ago, wrote a lovely chapter in a book in 1997 where she went out and reviewed what she considered or what generally was considered very successful programs in the United States. And I think there are about six or eight of these programs that she reviewed and tried to come up with what was the commonality 
of those successful programs that help children get to a better developmental level. And the commonality was intensive intensive service. It was almost not what you did. It was sort of who was doing it and how intensive it was. How about parental education? If I wanted to go and learn Russian, I certainly could not do that on 20 minutes once a week of speech therapy. I would have to have being reinforced all of the, all of the time. And it's something that I sort of try to help parents understand. I think there are many times where where parents think somebody else is going to fix it for them. And the reality is that there has to be a good deal of carryover. Uh, the other part of this is the kids on the autism spectrum don't generalize information very well at all. So they can learn it in a particular setting, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be functional at home or in the community. So someone has to be there to carry that ho- over. So certainly parental in, uh, information, parental training, parental carryover is critical to uh, a successful outcome. Are the schools helpful as well? Some schools are very helpful. Some schools are less helpful. Some schools have very good in-school programs, but are uh, there, and I think largely due to finances, quite honestly, this is a very expensive proposition, and understandably schools have limited budgets, and particularly these days, and they don't get reimbursed from the state or from the federal government the way they should to support these children, so it really eats a hole in their overall school budgets. But I think, you know, many, some of them will, in fact, endorse a, a home-based program in addition to their center-based uh, school-based program, and I fully, I frankly, I think that's the way it needs to go. I think that, you know, as I just got through saying that learning something in a classroom is different than what you're going to do with it when you go out into the community or go home with it, and parents at least need to have some kind of home-based support so they know what the classroom is doing so they can carry over and practice those at home. If the parent is doing plan A and the school is doing plan B, that's not going to work. They both have to be on the same page to reinforce the same skills. Uh, in order to make them uh, come online and stick. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Margaret Bauman. We're discussing treatment for autism. While there's no cure for autism, I know you feel strongly that treatment can make measurable differences. What measures would you recommend that a patient use to feel secure that their child is making progress. Oh, that's one of the big challenges, and not only just for parents, but for the researchers as well. They, I mean, every researcher will tell you that there probably are not good measures for outcome. Uh, what we use is what we have, uh, which is you've given some kind of measure to begin with, and then you give it again six months later or a year later, and you see whether or not there's been any changes. But I think most most people are not really happy with that. So consequently, there probably are not good measures for parents either. I mean, if the researchers don't have them, it's unlikely that the parents are going to have them either. But most parents, they will tell you, you know, when I came to see you the last time, he only had one word. Now he's got 50 words or he's got 100 words or you know, he wasn't playing before, but now he's playing. I mean, most of those parents are very tuned in, surprisingly well-tuned into these children. I mean, they're, they're terrific as, uh, as a group. Where is research going today, and what's the current state of the art? There's a huge push towards genetics. I think it's important. I would like to see some of those dollars, however, spread out over other fields. Uh, I think uh, the, the genetics of the disorder is uh, one that's tremendously important, not only for the kids, but if, in terms of science. We do not ha- currently have an animal model, for example, of any part of this. Uh, there are 
people who think that they have some kind of an animal model and they've looked at this structure or that structure or circuitry or whatever, but I don't think anybody's very happy with any of these animal models particularly. So without an animal model, we can't really sort of explore things like why is the this part of the brain talking to that part of the brain instead of the place it ought to be talking to, for example, or is it is it doing it efficiently or not? So we really need an animal model, and I think the genetics is certainly the way to go. What research are you currently doing? Our research is really looking on uh, localization of abnormalities, structural abnormalities in the brain at the microscopic level. And we've homed in largely on an area called the limbic system, which is deep down in the brain and which has uh, long been known to be responsible for learning, emotion, behavior, and memory. Uh, and it's quite clear that many of those structures are involved in this disorder, although our exact findings haven't been replicated by other groups. They certainly, the, the structures we're talking about uh, are a great point of interest uh, from other groups, and I think most people agree that the limbic system is playing a role. The other area we've been interested in is in the cerebellum, which is it's in the back of the brain. And originally, back in the 80s, we just thought that had something to do with motor function, and no one was very interested in it because the lore was that uh, children on the autism spectrum were very good motor-wise. They didn't have any motor disabilities uh, or movement disabilities. We now know that's wrong, that most of these children are low muscle tone children. They have a great deal of problem with what's called motor planning. How do I get my body to do what I want it to do when I want it to do it? And a whole host of other things. And, and further research in the cerebellum has strongly suggested that the cerebellum is really a modulator for a lot of other things that the rest of the brain does. So it really impacts on affect, it impacts on uh, social skills, interaction, uh, attention, uh, your ability to anticipate what's going to happen next and so forth. So it's a huge player, and there certainly are well-described abnormalities in the cerebellum. Are there any correlation between what's been learned about the genetics, the chromosomal abnormalities, and the structural changes that you've noted? There are some hints. I wouldn't say that we've got huge, huge correlations. One of them, for example, is the fact that uh, Dr. Gene Blatt out of our, our lab was very interested in a neurotransmitter called uh, gamma-aminobutyric acid, otherwise known as GABA. GABA is one of your primary inhibitory neurotransmitters. And uh, he was interested in looking at it uh, in the hippocampus, which is part of this limbic system. Hippocampus is important for um, memory and learning, and noted uh, that in a subset of samples that this was markedly diminished in the autistic subjects as compared to the controls. Now, that's particularly interesting because GABA uh, has a number of sites on chromosome 15, and chromosome 15 is one of the chromosomes that's been uh, a hot area of interest and is considered uh, uh, an at-risk gene area. So it was it's probably one of the uh, rather limited still, unfortunately, studies that suggest that there may well be a correlate between what we're seeing in the brain and, and uh, what's going on genetically. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Margaret Bauman. We're discussing treatment for autism. Is there any pharmacologic intervention that might be helpful in a child with autism? Or is there any way of stimulating GABA receptors, perhaps, to see what the changes are, how it affects their behaviors and ability? I think that there are some people who are beginning to explore that. I think, you know, unfortunately, sometimes parents pick up 
they pick up what comes out in the literature, even though, or somebody has presented five cases at a meeting that, like this GABA story, and the next thing you know, parents have gone out and bought uh, GABA at the, the, the health food store and start giving their kids GABA. I'm not sure that that's really what we need to be doing, because uh, first of all, we don't know what we're doing, uh, and I don't know. You know, as we said before, this is not a one-size-fits-all. So. You know, it may be the GABA is a player, and for some children, we don't know whether it's for everybody. We really haven't done those kinds of studies, and so I think parents really need to be very cautious about the information that they're getting. Uh, people are beginning to look at some of that. The the drug that's been now recommended for children, or at least used frequently in children with autism, is Respiradol, and largely it's given for behavioral, severe behavioral problems. I don't think anybody's sort of thinking it's going to cure autism, but it certainly seems to have had some positive effects on behavior. Again, this is only in some kids and not others. I'd like to thank you so much for the time you spent with us right now discussing both causes as we know them and treatment of autism and the autism spectrum disorders. Dr. Margaret Bauman has been my guest, and I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to ReachMD XM233, the station for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. Good day and good health.